If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 7. When I teach the uh, ninth graders at the high school, I teach science to them, and I always talk about Halley's Comet. In 1675, Isaac Newton wrote a book that showed, completely showed, how gravity works. Before then, no one really knew. Everybody knew that apples fell from trees, not just Newton, but he was able to describe it. He could, with math, describe exactly what was happening to an apple. In fact, his his, uh, question was not, why does an apple fall from the tree? His question was, why doesn't the moon fall out of the sky? Now, that was his question. Now, that's an interesting question. Because if he watched an apple fall and he was looking at the moon through the branches of that tree, his question was, why doesn't the moon fall? And believe it or not, in the last chapter of his book, he determines that the moon is falling at a quarter of an inch per year. And it'll take 80 billion zillion quillion years for the moon to fall onto the, into the sea. But something really happened after his book was published. There was an astronomer named Haley, and he said... I get it. Comets are just like planets. And the planet goes around the sun because of gravity. And the comets that come into the sky every great once in a while are just like planets. And so he wrote a prediction. And he said, in 1759, the comet that just went through the sky a few years ago will come back. And then he died in 1742. And in 1759, the comet came back. And they named it Halley's Comet because he knew enough about what Newton had said to recognize how to predict things. Because if things work a certain way, then there is a timing to the universe. And if there's a timing to the universe, you can know why, what's going to happen, and it's not magic at all. And so that's why Halley's Comet comes back every 76 years um, Year after year after year, you can depend upon it because it's because God ordained things to work according to God's timetable. Today we're going to look at the timetable that Jesus goes by. And we're going to see that his timetable is not the same as the timetable of other people. Not the timetable of I follow. Not the timetable that most people follow. Certainly not the timetable of the wicked. That Jesus was on a specific God-ordained timetable. So we have to realize that John is marking his time by festivals. So when you go through the book of John, you're going to see that Jesus visits Jerusalem every time that there's a festival. So we've seen several. We saw in chapter 2 that there was a Passover. Okay, and he comes to the Passover and he's speaking and um, doing miracles at the Passover. Then in in chapter 5, there's an unnamed feast to the Jews. Okay, that may be another Passover. If so, then there's four Passovers. Most most scholars agree that the amount of things that the Gospels depict about Jesus, that his ministry would have been about three years, and that he has to die on the Passover because he is the Passover lamb, that God has ordained that he die at a very specific time. And Jesus is going to call that time his hour. But he has other words for time. 
A time is like an appointed time, and he's going to use those words today. It is not his hour. It's not the hour that he is to die for humanity. But he does have a specific time that God works on. So when we read in Daniel today that Daniel was in Babylon as a prisoner of the, of the, the nations who had conquered the Babylonians. And he realized from reading Jeremiah, Jeremiah was his Bible, and he was reading Jeremiah, the same Jeremiah we can read. And Daniel was reading Jeremiah and said, I get it. It's coming. It's like Haley's Comet. We are going to be restored after 70 years. And after 70 years, we'll come back. And he starts counting, how long have we been in Babylon? And he realized, we're almost at 70. We're at the very edge of the last moment that we are in our, our wilderness wanderings, that we're in our captivity, and that Jesus is going to, to restore all things. And he could see it. He saw it in the scriptures. And he made predictions based upon that. And his his, his, Daniel started writing down what he, what he understood. And what he said is that God has ordained 70 weeks of years and that you can actually say for every year, every week, it's a year. And so 70 weeks is 70 times 7 times 69. And at 69, Messiah the Prince will be cut off, but not for his own sins. You look at now and you realize... He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is coming at a very specific time that God has ordained, and then he will be cut off at a very specific time that God has ordained. And then we get to that last week that we'll have to say hasn't happened yet, that the last week that, we'll, that all things will be brought into consummation has yet, has yet to, to happen. But you can simply add up numbers like a fourth-grade math class and realize that by the issuing of the commandment that uh, Artaxerxes, which was Esther's husband, made that Jerusalem should be rebuilt, which history tells us was about was in his 20th year. The, uh, uh, Nehemiah says it was in the 20th year of his reign. Well, archaeologists say the 20th year of his reign was 445 B.C. And you count up 69 weeks of years... And at the very latest, the Messiah must have been cut off by 38 AD. Must. That he would have already been uh, cut off, but not for his sins. Now that means God is on a very specific timetable. And we know nothing about that. Because we we are of the world, just like John wrote. They're of the world and they act like the world. They don't act like God. They don't think like God. The things of God don't concern the worldlings. So Jesus is now of God speaking to people who are not. And you will always rub. That will always be a rub. That will always be a soft, uh, hurty place. As Jesus is now, in this case, dealing with his own brothers who do not believe. So let's read the first 14 verses of chapter 7 together. And we'll see that we're in another festival. We are now six months later. At the end of chapter 6, we were at Passover in Jerusalem. And this is now the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in September, October. So we're six months later. 
Six months has happened from the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7. This is God's word. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. His brethren, therefore, said unto him, Depart hence and go to Judea, that thy disciples may also see the works which thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world can't hate you, but me it hates, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. You go up to the fast, to the feast. I'll not go up to this feast, for my time is not yet full come. And when he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he up also unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast, said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, he's a good man. Others said, nay, he deceives the people. Howbeit, no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Very interesting. This, this reminds me of chapter 2 when Mary said, they need wine. And Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. And then fills, makes wine out of water because he's, he's basically making a parable about his death. The hour of his death is coming, but, but isn't yet. This is not the word hour here. Jesus is saying, my appointed time, the time that God has ordained for me hasn't come. You have to see that, that Jesus is always gazing at the Father's face all the time. Every moment of the day, he's watching his Father, and he's doing what his Father is doing, and he's doing what his Father is commanding him, that he is living as a man as a perfect man would, would live. He is living as Adam couldn't live. He is living as Israel couldn't live. He's, he is... He's always caring about God's will, and he's never caring about his own will. That's what makes Jesus qualified to be our Savior. Because had he only been interested in himself like everyone else, he couldn't have died for us. Not and, not and met God's uh, wrath and put it away from us. He could not have diverted God's wrath away if he himself was self-centered. Now, when you think of self-centered... There's no one as self-centered as Jesus. You only have to look at chapters 5 and 6 to realize that every time he opens his mouth, he's talking about himself. It's the Son of Man. It's the Son of Man. You must honor the Son of Man. It's the Son of Man can do the same things God can do. So he is talking about, he's very Christ-centric, but he is not about his own will. He's only about God's will. And for that reason, he is talking to his brothers of I'm not going up yet because I only do what God's saying and God is saying you can't go up at the beginning of this feast 
you have to wait. Now, the feast lasts about a week. It's the biggest, funnest thing in the year. There are three feasts. This is from Deuteronomy 16. This is in the law. Three times a year shall all the males appear before the Lord thy God in the place where he shall choose, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and in the Feast of Weeks, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Every man had to go to Jerusalem for this. Okay, so you're going to see that the Passover is in the spring. Good Friday is always, or Easter Sunday is always the Sunday after the first day of Passover. Good Friday is that first day. It's the day that you would kill the lambs, and then that next Saturday day was the Sabbath. And you would kill the lambs on that Friday night at twilight, and that's when he died. He had to die at Passover because he was the Passover. And it was God's plan, and it would not go any other way. It must be that. Jesus would pass right through crowds that wanted to strangle him and kill him and throw rocks at him, and he walked by because it wasn't his hour. God ordained the hour of his death. Jesus said, I myself lay down my life. No one takes it from me. He's the one who determines what and when. So here he is at Passover one year later. And now we're six months before that at the Feast of Tabernacles. We're now in September, October. If you remember, the, the Jewish calendar is by months. And the Roman calendar is, is not always by the same month as a, as a moon. So that there's, some, there's some off. So, so remember, Easter can be anywhere from March to April, somewhere like that. Well, so can October. October and September would be the, the Feast of Tabernacles. The second one is called Pentecost. And you know of Pentecost, the word Pentecost, because that's the day that the Holy Spirit fell upon the believers in the churches. But Pentecost simply means 50 days. So we have 50 days after Passover. So this is now May and June. And in 50 days, the harvest comes in, the, the very beginning of the wheat harvest. So we're talking about that very first tomato on the vine. And you're thinking, I've waited months and months for that first tomato, and then you're so sick of tomatoes because there are trillion, billion tomatoes. Well, that first sheaf of wheat grows, and you can see it as wheat. It opens up, and you can see the kernels sitting on the top of that grass, and you cut it, and you bring it to Jerusalem. You actually bring a box with a sheaf of wheat in it, and it's the first thing that grew in your garden. And you gave it to the priest, and the priest waves it. The very first one, it's called a wave offering. And he brings before God and he says, this is the first that grew, and because this grew, we know that the whole garden is going to grow. Jesus died on first fruits. First fruits, which meant that Jesus died and rose again on that Sunday, and all will come follow him because he was presented before God, because he raised from the dead. All will raise from the dead. We have hope, real hope, because Jesus was our first fruits. The last one in October is tabernacles. They call it booths. And I think this would have been fun, 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 fun. This is fun. Everybody liked tabernacles. This was Christmas. 
This was what everyone loved. Because what happened is you would remember the wilderness wanderings. And you all lived outside for a whole week. And you had to live in Jerusalem. So if you had a house in Jerusalem, you would build a tent out of leaves or branches or whatever on the roof or in your courtyard. And everybody that would come into Jerusalem would be on this. Every square inch of the town would be covered with booths. One to the next to the next. And everybody was cooking on campfires and everybody was laughing. We're talking about it was carnival season. It would be what you looked forward to. It would be what you loved because that's fun. Can you imagine everybody camping at the same time? That's as fun as it gets. And that is what, where we are. Everybody would have been there. The whole place loved going there. And everybody had to go to all three of these, but this was the one that they couldn't wait for. And his brother said, you need to go up right now. You need to go up right now because, because you need to market yourself. If you are wanting to be a religious guy, you need to go to the capital. What are you doing in the backwaters? You need to go to the festival and you need to go early and set up your place so that everybody knows you and everybody sees you. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Because I don't do things according to the way the world does things. I do not, I do not need your marketing campaign. I don't need your, your, your Madison Avenue helping me out. God is telling me what to do, and you going up, because your time is any time. But my time is specifically ordained by God, and I don't move until God says so. Now, I think that is pretty cool. You see, he's talking to his brothers here. Matthew 13 tells us the names of his brothers. Okay, this is 1355. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? You can kind of see that Joseph is no longer here. And his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Okay. Now James is James, the writer of James. And James becomes the head, the head teaching pastor of the church in Jerusalem after the resurrection. He becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And his littlest brother, Jude, is here known as Judas, the little brother Jude wrote that last book before Revelation, that little one-chapter book called Jude. So we have two of Jesus' brothers that are New Testament writers. But at this time, none of them believed in him, none at all. They were all unbelievers. They were all worldlings. They thought like the world. They gave advice like the world. And Jesus had to essentially ignore their advice in order to be right with God. He cannot, under the, the pose of being nice to us, break God's law, break God's commandment, and, and take God from being the center of everything he does. It was Jesus' love for God that is the story of this Bible. It's Jesus' love for God and God's love for Jesus. That's the Bible that we read every day. So let's look at chapter three or chapter 7, starting in verse 3, and we'll see how Jesus responds to what I don't think is nasty. I don't think this is snarky. There are some commentators that think this is snarky. I don't believe this is snarky. I think that his brothers were, okay, you want to you wanna be, you wanna be a baseball player? Then you need to go and audition for the baseball team. If you want to be a star basketball player, you need to, to have somebody where they're going to have a scout that's going to see you. 
you want to be a rock star, you need somebody to know you're good. You want to be a religious leader, have to go to Jerusalem. And you need to go now because this is the biggest crowd of the year. This is where everybody's in town. You need to be seen. That's not necessarily snarky, but it doesn't understand Jesus at all. He doesn't understand that Jesus is God, certainly. They don't understand anything. They're simply trying to give advice like people give advice. And Jesus can't take their advice. So this is verse 3. His brethren, therefore, said to him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Now their logic is fine. It said, first of all, show your disciples your works. Now that's really interesting. Does his disciples not always see his works? Is the disciples not working day and night, watching one miracle after another, day after day after day after day? I think that without any doubt, he's talking about all those disciples that left him at the end of chapter 6. Do you remember? He was talking to the people who he had fed, 5,000 of them, and a big crowd wanted him to be the Messiah, wanted him to be. He is the Messiah, but they wanted him to be the Messiah. But he preaches the gospel to them, and they're not interested in the gospel. They want him for what they want him for. They don't want him for what he wants to be wanted for. And so they want him to be the Messiah, and he basically shocks them and and gives them a hard teaching, if you remember our hard teaching sermon. And then not only did those people leave, and those people do not get saved, those people do not come to Jesus as Savior. But many of his disciples who are following him day after day leave and never follow him again. So things are looking pretty bad for Jesus' ministry. His ministry is on the rocks. And Jesus is walking in Galilee because he doesn't want to walk in Judea because they're going to kill him. Now that's pretty interesting. We just did in Sunday school today, Elijah was running from Jezebel who's going to kill him And he was so depressed that he just wanted God to end his life. He was ready to chuck it all in. But Jesus is not unwilling to die. He is looking forward to the cross, which is absolutely unbelievable. He wanted to be our Savior. So it's not his death that he's afraid. He's not a weenie at all, and he's running from the Jews. He simply knows that there is a timeline that has to be followed, and he has to die on the Friday before sundown, he needs to be, his last gasp needs to be at the moment that you kill the, the, the lambs for Passover because he is our Passover lamb. And he knows that he must die then. He can't die early. He cannot enrage these people who want to kill him, and they want to kill him. They've decided in chapter 5 he's got to die. And now they watch him in chapter 6, and they're completely convinced, and they are going to do whatever it takes to put this guy down because he is a dangerous, dangerous person to them. And so they've already decided, and Jesus avoids them. And then you realize that he's going to go up to the feast anyway, so what's the big deal? Is this like when his mother said, you know, do something, and he goes, it's not my hour, and then he goes ahead and does it anyway? It's not like that at all. He doesn't want the parade. You have to realize the entire town, everybody is required to be in Jerusalem, 
which means everybody travels together. It's a caravan. Everybody in town is walking to Jerusalem together, and they meet with the thousands of people that are farther north than them walking. And everybody's on the road, and there's psalms. You sing psalms, and there's specific songs of ascent that you sing as you're going up to Jerusalem for the feasts. It is a parade, and Jesus doesn't want a parade. Jesus doesn't want a group. He doesn't want a mass. He doesn't want to be the star of the show right now. He is putting himself into the shadows because he's biding his time because he needs to die on the Friday of Passover. And so God says, no, do not move, and Jesus doesn't move because God trumps everything that Jesus has. You have to realize that this worldly advice that the brothers are giving is not because they hate Jesus or that they're mocking him, but it's because they didn't believe in him. This is verse 5, 7, 5. For neither did his brethren believe in him. They didn't believe. Now, you tell me that Jesus Christ lived in your family and that you watched him from the earliest, for your earliest memory. His four brothers, all younger, of course, than he was. Jesus was the firstborn son of Mary. And Mary and Joseph were these people's parents, and they grew up in the same house, and they watched Jesus every single day of their lives. And Jesus never sinned even once. Never sinned in his words, never sinned in his actions, never sinned in his motivation. And they are now staring at someone who's probably 32 years old, at least, and they've known him every day of their life, and he is unknown to them. They don't know who he is. And they just say, oh, well, he can raise someone from the dead. Wow, my brother can do a lot. Or he just fed 5,000 people on, on a bologna sandwich. Really? Wow, my brother can do a lot. They're missing it. They're not perceiving what's... They're seeing it. But there's no, it's not entering into the idea of no one can do that but God. Oh, my brother is God. That is inconceivable. They're not believers. They haven't yet done it, okay? So, so you have to realize Jesus is not self-serving. You remember that Jesus is not self-serving. These people are trying to help him out by wanting him to be more self-serving so that something will happen. Do you understand that, that can't, those two things can't exist at the same time? Jesus refuses. Satan comes in at the wilderness and says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will bow down and worship me. Knowing that, that it's God's will for Jesus to have all the kingdoms of the world. The devil knew that. And he, I will give you a two. You will essentially do exactly what you're meant to do if you'll do this. And Jesus said, only God do you worship. But yet the brothers are saying, you need to be self-centered. You need to go and grab it. If you want them to know you, you have to go and get that attention. And Jesus is not able to tell them because they're not able to comprehend that he will be the star of the next feast. The Passover, Jesus will be the star. He's going to come in on a parade and people are like, will you tell these children to stop screaming Hosanna? And Jesus said, I'm really sorry if they stop the, the rocks and the streets are going to start screaming. Like Jesus is not afraid to be the center when he needs to be the center. But right now he is backing up. He's backing up because God is in control and you can't have 
self-centered and God-centered in the same breath, in the same person. And if you need to to reject your very loved ones, then you must reject your very loved ones. And Jesus is doing this. So he waits. And now he goes on that same road by himself because he waits for days. Everyone needs to be there on the first day. Everybody's there by Sunday, and there's festivals, and there's all kinds of things. And we're going to see the rest of this chapter is all the stuff that happens during tabernacles. It's one big ceremony after another. You're you're going to have things that happen, and Jesus is like, it's me. This is me we're talking about. So he will preach. But it said in verse 14, he waits till the middle of the week, and then he starts preaching. So he is now traveling Jerusalem by himself, and it said, as it were, in secret. He is now an observer at worship. Do not forget Jesus Christ is among us now. Do not ever forget that where two or three are truly gathered in God's glorious honor, that Jesus is shining here. And you have to say, what would God think of my worship? What would God think of my heart? What would God think of my motives? What would God think of me? as I am holding out worship to him, because Jesus is an observer of this feast. He is. He is the feast. He is the feast. And now Jesus is watching. He's there, and no one knows he's there. He's there kind of incognito. So let's go to his response. This is verse 6. Jesus said to him, My time is not yet come, but yours is already, always ready. Okay? So I operate on God's timetable. You operate on the world's timetable. And because of that, it's really impossible. So when we think of Daniel, and Daniel's very day is all, like, there's, from the time that Daniel is sitting in Babylon in captivity, he is able to know the year that the Messiah will die for him. That is, that's remarkable that Daniel is saying, God has told me that the Messiah will be here and the Messiah will be cut off, not for himself, but for us. This is Galatians 4. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons that there was a time when God said, go, and Jesus went. There is a time that Jesus, the man, didn't even know what time that would be, that Jesus will be sent to this earth. Go and get my people. And there, there will be an instantaneous rush from heaven, and God, God will open the skies, and Jesus will be in the skies. Now, laugh if you want. That's our only hope, that Jesus Christ is coming for us, that we are not the most despised of the world. We might be the off-scouring of this world. Let them have it. Let them have it all. Take it all. If you give me Jesus Christ returning in glory, you can keep it all rest. Don't want it anyway. Won't need it. So there is a time And Jesus said on the very first words of his mouth in Mark, the time is fulfilled. Repent, therefore. 
There is a, an appointed time for Jesus to be Savior. There's an appointed time for Jesus to die for our sins. There's an appointed time for Jesus to return in glory. There is an appointed time for his coronation where every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will say, God in heaven. Though they're on their way to hell, they will say it. Before they're bound, they will say it. So Jesus' timetable is different. So you think of Judas Iscariot with his 20 pieces of silver in his change pocket, getting up from dinner so that he can go and arrange things. And Jesus makes a comment that everybody else misses. The whole table misses it. No one thought Jesus was the, was the, the guy. No one thought he was. But Jesus looks straight into Judas' face and said, what you're doing right now. Do it right now. Because I have to die tomorrow. In the night, I need, to be, I need to be arrested. You need to go immediately. Now, at that point, there was no return. God had shut the door of that ark, and there was no ark left for him. He had to now go to his place, and his place meant that he had to reject Jesus Christ and sell him for nothing. And then threw the, the coins back at the priest, and the priests were like, what's that to us? So Judas had to do it at that moment. The time of grace was done because Jesus was still in control because God's timetable meant that he had to be at a certain time at a certain place and he was at a certain time when that woman came with the water jar. It was an appointment. There was a time and a place where he met with people. He did everything. He never ran anywhere. He never hurried anywhere. God ordained his steps and you have to realize that the steps of a good man are ordained by the Lord. And though he fall, he will not be cast down. If you are following Jesus Christ, God is ordaining your steps. God sets you up. God sets every catastrophe that's ever happened in your life right in your path on purpose so that you will love him exactly the way you need to so that you will be rewarded with his rewards. He will do what he needs to do in your life to make you love him. And wean you from this world. So yes, you pour your broken hearts out to your master. You pour them out. Because you're real to him. You're a person. And you're, not, you're worth something to him. And so when you're crushed and you're broken, you come to him. He does not hate you. He died for you. But every day, every day, the good and the wonderful and the mountaintops and the beautiful and the Sun in the, in the windows, that's of God. And the sad and the broken and the gravesides, that's from God. And everything is ordained that you might be exactly what you need to be forever his. He loves you. So, when you look at the idea that he has, an, he has a time... He's now sitting at the feast, and he's not too late. You're going to get to chapter 11 eventually. And chapter 11, Lazarus is in the grave for four days. And it says that when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two extra days on purpose so that he would be four days late so that he could do exactly what God intended to do to bring him the highest honor and to make people completely know 
that he is God. And you have to realize that Lazarus was raised from the dead in order for Jesus to be killed on Friday because people came to see Lazarus as much as they came to see Jesus. Lazarus was dead and everybody knew it and now he's here and everybody wanted to see him and the crowds were everywhere and now here comes Jesus and they want him dead. They want him dead right now. They need him out of the picture. So you realize that the four days and the two days and the five days and the not in and where's Jesus and why doesn't he love me is all part of God's plan that he might save us. God is not in any way frustrated. He can do as he please. And now everyone's talking about him. Everybody's talking about him. They were like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? They knew he was coming. They couldn't avoid it. They knew he was going to be there. His enemies knew it. They wanted to trap him. And when you go through Matthew, one trap after another, after another, after another, they send the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all the E's. They all come and they're trying to trap him in his words. What are they doing? They're, they're wanting to get him. Well, John men- doesn't mention any of that. But he says everybody's looking for him and everybody's talking about him. And everybody who's talking about him is talking nonsense about him. You have half the group saying he's a good man. And half the group say, no, he's a deceiver. Now, that's interesting. Jesus, who talks nothing about him but himself, is not a good man. The self-centered is not a good man, not even here, not even now. Somebody who just talks about themselves, you couldn't stand a person like that. So Jesus, the good man, can't be the good man. Either he's the Savior or he's not a good man. Because either he knew that he was not God and he claimed to be God, or he didn't know he was not God and he thought he was God, or he was God. There's three choices. One of the first books I ever read was Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he said, either he's a lunatic, or he's a liar, or he's Lord. There is no third option. And so you can't just say he's a good man. You can't have a religious studies class run by a bunch of atheists who think that Jesus was a good teacher. That's not going to do. Because Jesus' teaching doesn't make sense to worldlings. It's, It's for his own. The Sermon on the Mount does not save your soul because nobody can do it. It's only those who are saved by grace who can live in pleasing life to God. Only those. So Jesus, the good man, and then some say, no, he's the deceiver. You you have to determine for yourself what you think Jesus is, but you have to deal with him. You're forced. He's the scandal on. He's the stone of offense that you will either stumble on or he will crush you to powder. Jesus is God, and God does not act like people, and God is not in the same time as us. So when we, as we look at Jesus and what he speaks, because now he's going to stand up and now he's going to start teaching, and we're going to now see what Jesus says starting next week, Lord willing. Amen? Amen. Amen.